listen to what we have in Christ. Therefore, have you, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good to see you all today. You know, we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about um, our Old Testament text from several weeks ago, Deuteronomy 30, where Moses presents God's people with a choice just prior to their entering the promised land. The choice he presents them with is the choice between good and evil, the choice between life and death. It's a significant choice. And given the nature of the choice, Moses insists, uh, he, he pushes them, choose life. Life is who your God is, he says, and life is what he has called his people into. So receive life or enter life personally, yes, and then as we focused on last week, also extend that life to the vulnerable, because life was a guiding principle for the people of Israel. It is also a guiding principle for those who abide in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So this week, I want to take the next step in this conversation and consider the importance of promoting life in the context of Christian community. We talked briefly about this last week, but when I make a decision to choose life, it isn't entirely an individualistic endeavor. So I choose life for me, but, but not just for me. The nature of that choice is that it is also for others. As I acknowledge my connection to others, I then begin to understand my well-being and my life in terms of that connection to others. So what is good for me, but destructive for someone else, maybe isn't good or life-giving for me after all, at least 
in the Christian sense. So one way we choose life as God's people is by promoting life in the context of Christian community. And I think one of the primary ways we promote life in the context of community is through the words we speak. There's a well-known proverb, Proverbs 18. In fact, this proverb um, says a lot about our patterns of speech throughout it, but probably the most well-known verse from that chapter is verse 21, where we read this, death and life. So keep that text from Deuteronomy 30 in our minds, the choice between death and life. This proverb, death and life, are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, texts like this have at times been misused and misapplied, at least in, in my view. So we want to be careful to note that this piece of wisdom from Proverbs is not intended at all to prop up some sort of a uh, name-it-claim-it theology where whatever I speak, I bring into existence. So I can only say those things that I want to happen because if I say something negative, it's going to come to pass. In this way, I think our words become sort of a hocus-pocus magic trick or an incantation. And personally, I don't think that's at all helpful in the conversation. You know, while I've never personally experienced this, I've heard stories of people using this specific text to suggest that we shouldn't acknowledge chronic illness or terminal diseases um, because if I acknowledge it with my words, it is going to happen. It's sort of like that, this is very juvenile, but sort of like that line from Talladega Nights. Uh, Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. If you speak it, it is going to come to pass. So instead, speak positive things, and then the blessings will flow. In my view, that is a destructive misunderstanding of a really important piece of wisdom. And so we must not allow those, some of those popular misuses to cause us to ignore this important conversation. The principle of wisdom that we cling to here is simply this, that the tongue is a powerful force, so we want to be careful with it. This figure of speech from Proverbs is obviously not saying my words are powerful enough to make somebody physically die or to make a heart start beating once it's stopped. You know, though tragic and not at all to be rejoiced in, death is a natural part of life and our words are not these magical tools that can reverse some of the natural processes of our world. Instead, this piece of wisdom is simply acknowledging that our words can be used for good or for evil, for encouragement or discouragement, to build up or to tear down. Our words can be used for life or death. So be careful with your words because they matter. They're really important. You know, these 
reminders about the importance of our speech permeate Hebrew wisdom literature. We'll, we'll touch on some more examples in a moment, but for now we keep this line in our minds, death and life are in the power of the tongue, coupled with this encouragement that we've been working through in Deuteronomy 30, choose life. In next week's text from the epistles, I, I hope I'm not getting into what Austin is going to cover next week. I ran this by him and he gave me the, the go ahead, so I hope you don't change your mind, Austin. But Paul warns in that chapter, Colossians 3, about the potential death-dealing effects of a tongue that has not come under submission to Christ. He says this in verse 5. And, and the tongue is not the only thing he warns about, but, but it is an important reminder. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So these instructions from Paul, these are not arbitrary requirements or tools that God is using to test us to see how serious we are about our faith if we can adhere to all of these arbitrary rules. No, we put these things away, as Paul instructs us, because they are destructive. They're destructive to us, to others, and to the community Christ is building. And so we put away destructive speech because it is dismantling the possibility to have genuine community. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke put it like this. He said, the deadly tongue disrupts community and by its lethal power isolates its owner from community and kills him. The life-giving tongue creates community and by its vitality gives its possessor the full enjoyment of the abundant life within the community. I think this is one reason James instructs us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Not because talking in and of itself is evil, but because we recognize that our words are powerful enough to either create or destroy community. And so as we understand that, we want to commit to exercise extreme caution in how we use our words because they are powerful enough to create or destroy community, but also so easy to thoughtlessly misuse. And a thoughtless misuse of our words can do untold damage. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, in, in talking about the tendency, maybe especially in religious communities, that the tendency to circulate grievances and to nurse grudges, which is closely connected to our use of words, Rowan Williams said this, we must resist the temptation to simply put more grudge into circulation instead of breaking through to something new. 
breaking through to something new, something that is not poisonous but is life-giving. Because just as our words can breed death and destruction, they can also uplift. They can also encourage and they can nurture life. You know, last December, just before Nanette and I started our two-month sabbatical, we had a party, uh, a celebration after one of our worship services to celebrate our 10-year anniversary here at Solid Rock. And a part of that celebration was a showering of dozens and dozens of cards from you all, Um, cards that were filled with incredibly meaningful, thoughtful words of encouragement and affirmation. And I don't know that I will ever forget that Sunday after we left that party, going home, me and Nanette sitting around our dining room table, reading through those cards and just weeping as your words of affirmation and encouragement were quite literally speaking life into our lives at a time where we felt a desperate need for that. Um, So I, I, I share that to emphasize that I have personally experienced from you all. You all have demonstrated to me, to our family, the power of words. Words can speak life. They can also speak death. Death and life are in the power of our words. As the young emerging poet, author Paul Pastor advised, be generous with kind words. They're so cheap to give and so unaccountably priceless to receive. And you know, that was true of our experience. Um, So by the way, thank you for those words. I I don't think I've thanked you all publicly for those words, but, but thank you. They genuinely spoke life into us. Perhaps unbeknownst to us, Maybe you didn't even realize it as you were writing those cards, but our words have a tremendous impact. Often they purvey life or they unintentionally multiply damage. So we must be careful with the use of our tongue. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become a people who are just constantly pandering to one another or constantly using flattery or only speaking what we know others in the community are wanting to hear in a way that lacks all authenticity. No, truth-telling is obviously an essential part of healthy speech in the context of community. And I think it's important to recognize that in this conversation. Even if that truth is uncomfortable, truth-telling is essential. Flattery is not the goal in this. So sometimes our words in community must carry with them much needed critique. And it's important that we all are growing in our ability, in our openness to hearing those, what I believe to be life-giving words of critique and correction. That sort of correction and critique is not only helpful in our relationships, but it is, I believe, necessary for healthy community. However, even our critique should have life as the goal. 
And so if we are thinking through the words of critique that we think are needed, but I, I look in my heart and I see that my motivation is not the life of the individual I'm talking to or the life of other individuals, then maybe the critique should be saved until that issue is resolved. Paul Pastor went on to helpfully caution in this way. He said, one thing that will serve you well is to always shine your compassion like a floodlight and your criticism like a laser. Life-giving speech is not, the only, is not only speech that is overtly positive. In the above analogy, both the floodlight of compassion and the laser of critique, they both serve very specific purposes. They can both be very helpful, and they both bring life in their own ways. But when used exclusively, their usefulness becomes incredibly limited. They actually, when used exclusively, can become counterproductive. If they're used in the wrong context or from a place of impure motivations, that can completely undermine their intended purposes. So I, in the context of community, I critique a brother or sister not to make myself feel better. Any critique I offer with my words is motivated by a desire for the good of the person I'm speaking to and for the good of others involved in the situation. Note, our words of critique are best when spoken to the person involved, not somebody unrelated. I think we would do well to make it a practice that if we talk about somebody in their absence, it is uplifting speech. Now, again, I want to note here, and I hope you hear this, that these are not absolutes. These general principles, I, I think it's possible, we're, our staff is reading a book called, um, a church called Tav, um, and one of the things that Scott McKnight stresses is that it's possible to take biblical principles and apply them across the board in a way that actually undermines the goal of the principle. And I think it's possible in this context to, to take it to the extreme in an unhealthy way. Um, because if there is an issue of abuse or harassment or exploitation, this principle no longer applies. If that is the case, if that's the situation, tell somebody. Tell somebody else because obviously telling the person who is perpetrating the abuse is not going to be effective. So these absolutes, th th this is not an absolute. It can't be utilized in every situation. But that's not where we're going in this conversation. What I'm interested this morning in discussing is just our normal, average, everyday interpersonal relationships with one another. It would be a great tragedy, I think, to use our words of critique as a way of protecting our own egos, thinking that that sort of self-protection is what is going to lead me into fulfilling life. Because in all actuality, I think it is in relinquishing some of that self-protection that we can begin to live deeply and abundantly. 
So thinking of our patterns of speech, those destructive patterns of speech that we are instructed to put away, slander, gossip, dishonesty, those are not only destructive to the person who is being spoken about, but they're also, I believe, destructive to the person engaging in the speech in this way. You know, one of the quickest ways that I can tell somebody else that I am not a trustworthy person is through my negative speech about somebody else. Maybe you've experienced this, where you hear somebody talking about somebody else, and the first mental note you make is, I cannot be vulnerable with that person because they can't be trusted. If they're going to talk about that person in that way, it's probably going to extend to me as well. So I bring that up. Because the, the point is, what is intended to protect my ego actually, in the end, begins to destroy me because it is destroying the possibility of genuine relationship. You know, St. Ambrose of Milan said this, no one heals himself by wounding another. I think we would do well to remember that as we think about our patterns of speech. We don't heal ourselves by wounding one another. So I want to return for a moment to the text that this whole conversation started from, Deuteronomy 30. So remember, this is prior to Moses' death, after he reiterates the law to this next generation of Yahweh's people and calls them again into a life of faithfulness, presenting them with that choice, the choice between good and evil, the choice between life and death, and he insists, choose life. If you continue reading the next several chapters after Deuteronomy 30, we find that Moses actually goes on to offer a fairly discouraging warning. He says, look, I understand that after I die, you're going to rebel. He has very little faith in the people he's leading. I, I know that when I die, you're going to slip back into those same patterns and habits, and your lack of faithfulness, even after you enter into the promised land, it's going to be bad for you. It is eventually going to lead to great difficulty. You're going to be in exile in foreign lands. But even in the midst of that discouraging warning, there is this persistent hope, even from Moses, that even in the devastation of exile, you can turn back to God. You can choose God again. And what is more, God is going to circumcise your heart. So we, we can think of that language from Colossians, from our scripture reading this morning. Moses indicates there's something that is fundamentally amiss with Israel's hearts. Really, something that is fundamentally amiss with all of our hearts. But one day, there is this persistent hope that something dramatic is going to happen and the hearts of God's people will be transformed. They can return to God, and in that return and transformation, they can experience true life. So Moses says all of these things, and then he dies. But I think this warning offered right at the end of his life is a good reminder for us that the choice of life, so we're thinking specifically in the context of the words of life that we speak, the choice 
of life is not something that we accomplish only through our own power. I do believe there is effort involved, that we enter these routines and try to shape and form our patterns and habits of speech. But true transformation is something that God's spirit enables as our hearts and our minds are renewed and conformed into Christ-likeness. You know, Jesus suggests that something dramatic needs to happen in here in order for any meaningful change in behavior to take place. In order for me to genuinely live abundantly or to choose life for myself or to choose life for somebody else, something has to change in here. And I think this is true when it comes to the words we speak. Because the words we speak are actually connected to their reflecting what's going on in my heart. They're not meaningless noises that our mouths are making, but it is revealing what's in here. In Luke chapter 6, verse 43, Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 15. We looked at this passage briefly several weeks ago when Jesus is questioned about his disciples not washing before eating. He says, look, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth. Going on in verse 18, he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What comes out of the mouth, Jesus says, proceeds from the heart. So in a potentially devastating way, our words are revealing what is going on in here. And so my encouragement, the way that I have been challenged by these texts in the past couple of weeks in preparing this, is that when I find that my words are not reflecting the character of Jesus, the words are having an impact, but the problem isn't the words themselves. The problem is where those words are coming from, which is an issue in my heart. So I ask myself, well, where is there brokenness in here that's leading to those unkind words? Where is there arrogance or fear or hatred or jealousy? Where are those things lurking in my heart? And then my prayer is, Jesus, help me deal with that issue. I I want my speech to be positive and uplifting and life-giving, but it's not just a matter of will where I change my speech, but Something needs to happen in my heart because those words are coming from here. So Jesus, help me deal with those things. If there are issues of sin in my heart leading to that speech, forgive me of that sin. 
transform my heart, that I might speak words that lead to life. So my prayer for us, it's a prayer for me as well. May we be reminded today that our words matter. They're important. They can build up. They can just as easily destroy. They can bring life or they can bring death. And so we choose life. And we choose life in the context of community as we use caution with our speech. So may we become a people who are generous and kind with our speech. Not at the expense of truth-telling. We want to be people who pursue the truth in all instances. But we also want to be people who are kind, encouraging, life-giving with our speech. So may we remember that harming somebody, harming somebody with my words doesn't make me whole but actually steals joy and life, not only from that person, but also from me. We are going to share a meal today around the table of our Lord as we do each week. And you know, for us, these elements, the bread and the cup represent to us the presence of Jesus Christ, who I believe is here with us today, inviting us into this moment. And as he does, remember, he tells his disciples, Paul records this in 1 Corinthians, that this bread that you share is my body, this cup that you drink of is my blood. When you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, you proclaim the death of our Lord until he comes again. And so as we do, you know, there's a 20th century Jesuit priest who advised, when you eat the body of Christ, pledge yourself to never abuse the body of another person. And I think keeping that image in our minds would be helpful as we come to the table of our Lord today, as we feast around the body and blood of our Lord. We are propelled into a life of service to one another, um, hearts and actions that are devoted to speaking and bringing life to those we are in community with. So would you stand this morning as we come to the table of our Lord? We'll make two lines down these center aisles. You can come to the front. When you arrive, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take those elements on your own and return to your seat. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation, and I want to begin with a prayer from Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, so direct our speech that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people 
through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?